Hello, welcome back to a conversation about film between me, Henry Griffin, and Jonathan Freilich, who hosts this podcast. We haven't done one of these in, a, I think, probably a couple of years, probably since before I became a dad, which took away all of my uh, disposable time. But we decided to start again because our current predicament, uh, this is obviously uh, April 9th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 shutdown. So uh, it's given us a lot of time on our hands, so we thought it'd be a great time to talk movies again. So it's been something of an interruption, but it's, we couldn't think of a better time to have a captive audience to watch uh, to watch movies and to talk about them. That's it, exactly. And captive talkers. We used to get together and do this in person, and now we're doing this sort of fresh air style. You know, Terry Gross is always by herself in her studio, and the yeah. guest who is so excited to be on fresh air never actually gets to meet Terry Gross. They have to just be in a quiet room so that you only have the conversation as the basis for your interaction. Yeah, we're getting closer and closer to Terry Gross here. It's definitely that way. And uh, I will say I have a dog in the room and it could possibly have a two-year-old any minute now. So uh, it'll, be, okay. it'll be very colorful. So the other thing is that we used to get together and talk about one movie. Uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're very good friends, but we both sort of have different areas of expertise. Uh, but in this case, we both cross-suggested. And so the movie's have some thematic connections, but I would say they're connected by the fact each of us picked a movie that they are connecting with in our current lockdown. That's exactly right. And And, actually, oddly enough, they had some connection. I don't know if you spotted that. Well, I don't think it's odd. I think they're, I think they're exactly connected. I think people are either in terms of the kind of art material, literature, music, cinema, television, uh, podcasts they're gravitating towards is either sort of, close to or on the nose of their current predicament or exactly in the opposite direction. So mm-hmm. either it's paranoia or escapist fantasy. Those That's, are two basic <laughs> things. And I'm not surprised that you head right towards the crux. Yeah, right. yeah, I guess so. So right. why don't we start by talking about your movie? It's a movie I'd seen a long time ago, uh, but I hadn't seen it in quite some time. I think I missed it when I was a young science fiction fan. We're talking about uh, Silent Running? Yes, Silent Running. Uh, tell me... for. Why don't you tell me how you encountered it, what your relationship is to it, and why you picked it? Okay, I first saw it, I first saw it, actually, I first saw the later half of it when I was much younger, and I caught it on TV. I happened to be just in the room watching it by myself. I must have been maybe 10 years old or 11 years old. I thought, wow, and I was really taken in by it. I thought it was incredible. And then I didn't, couldn't work out what it was for a lot of years. And we're talking about a film that is really from a very part, early part of my life. I mean, it was made when I was three years old or four years old, right? So, uh, so this would have already been a rerun on the BBC in England. And, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, it, it, it struck, it was striking for a lot of reasons right then because of, because of the sort of directness and simplicity of the way that about the, the thematic thing stuff is presented in it. But, uh, but also it just has a sort of, it, it, it has some iconic features that would stick in your head very easily. Uh, so I think that stuck with me. And then later on, I was able to figure out what it was and watch it. But I think that was in my early twenties. So I hadn't actually taken a look at it. Now I thought of it, it had been going through my head, but I actually hadn't thought and I'd been looking at clips, but I actually hadn't thought to go back and watch it again until I suggested it. And I suggested it because I knew that it had something that would be interesting to get across, especially in the times we're going through right now. So that's so, how I Silent Running. So I feel like just in case somebody doesn't know Silent Running, it's also a film I did not see as a child, even though it was an iconic 70s science fiction movie. I probably saw it for the first time around the turn of the 21st century in the early days of Netflix by mail, where you could finally get any movie you ever wanted. Right. But so, uh, 
for context, it's a film from 1972. Yes. Uh, directed by Douglas Trumbull. It was mm-hmm. the first film directed by Douglas Trumbull, who's most famous for having worked on the special and visual effects for 2001. Uh, and so he ended up doing a lot of effects work. He worked on the Andromeda Strain. He worked on, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture. But he's known for directing this movie and for directing Brainstorm. Uh, do you want to try and summarize the plot of Silent Running? Silent Running, yes, sure. Uh, the 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 main plot of the movie that we see is that uh, there is a a uh, a character who is some who's looking after forests that are and 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 uh, and fauna, flora and fauna that's been taken off the planet in order to in order to save it in these uh, domes that are attached to these very large transportation ships, and. Um, he the the company decides that they want to recall the ships. They're, the ships have to come in for de- destroying, and they're just supposed to cut loose the uh, the forests. And uh, he has some people that he works with. He defies them, kills one in order in order because he doesn't want to just destroy the forests. They're nuking they're nuking the all the uh, all everything they have on the ships in order to return to Earth. The other his his. Uh, the other people working on the ship are quite happy to go home and he is not because he's very angry, but he's a, he's clearly just got such a, you can see by his stuff on the wall, he's got a very, um, uh, a very deep feeling for environmental stuff. So anyway, so he cuts them loose. He, and, uh, and then he takes a, a sort of tactic where he's going to, uh, go through the rings of Saturn uh, which theoretically would kill him, but doesn't in this case. And he makes it to the other side where then he's alone, has to manage the ship himself. And uh, he reprogrammed, there's some very interesting robots that, that are in there that he reprograms for social interaction with himself. And uh, all this seems to be going well in terms of saving the stuff until all of the plants start dying. The, the forests on top of the ship, on, on the ship start dying. Uh, at a certain point, he works out what that's from is because straight up because of darkness because there isn't enough sunlight and but at around about that time the company that owns the ships tracks him down again and he realizes that that they that he's going to have to go back with them take the ships them so he works out a way to get set up the one remaining robot that that's functioning that he's taught to look after the forest and he cuts the domes with the forest loose with the robot on and that basically is the is the film. So there's a sort of narrative about Douglas Trumbull making this movie because I think he had a even though he was a young filmmaker, he had a pretty difficult time working on 2001 because Stanley Kubrick was a brutal taskmaster. And so this movie is in some ways a contrast to it. You know, 2001 is a very cold movie about how computers can't be trusted, and the computer ends up killing the dudes on the ship. And this is kind of a warmer movie about how people are jerks and the dude kills the other guys. That's right. Yes. That's and it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kills the human for, for, for yeah. being callous about the farm. Yeah, because, because actually the drones are better company. Yes. It, it is very interesting. There's so, there's so many interesting programs to be sort of in a, in a kind of political and environmental agreement with them. Yeah. And they're called Huey, Dewey and Louie. Right. So cute. They're named after the Donald duck, you know, Donald duck's nephews. Sure. In Louis, it's, it's very interesting features like that. I understand that that uh, George Lucas was uh, really uh, 
smitten with the film and wanted to be able to model R2-D2 on Huey And Dewey. so R2-D2, who is kind of like a kind of a rolling trash can that did have a little person named Kenny Baker inside, yeah. you know that all the drones were played by double amputees? Yes, very interesting. So they have this sense of like, so legless people with long arms were sort of, it gave the... It gave these drones, this is before we would use the word droid or kind of robots, gave them this really organic sense of motion that was, you know, unnerving to say the least. But it's very, it's original in its way. It's not uh, a very big budget movie, uh, but it does do a lot with what it has. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, I mean, and it's got a lot of, you know, very, it's exactly, it's, it's similar to the other movie. You know, you know, the other similar to the movie we were coming up with, it was made for a million dollars. And it was an experiment towards moving towards independent films. And actually, uh, the, the director Turnbull didn't didn't realize that he was part of an experiment when he was making it. Um, but uh, it, it has so many interesting features like that. Uh, uh, you know, Michael Cimino. Yeah, that was astonishing. The two of the writers are Michael Cimino, Mister Heaven's Gate, um, Deer Hunter, and Stephen Bochco, the guy yeah. behind Hill Street Blues. Yeah, it's really you know, a lot of those guys, a lot of people, the, the way up to being a above the line screen uh, director producer is really to get something produced. So I don't think they had a particular uh, connection with the material, but it got them out. Of, it, it was probably something that helped them catapult to the next level. Yeah. And then actually, while we're still talking, before we get to the some of the interesting uh, related themes that we're talking about here, the other the other really, really notable thing in there and very unusual is that Peter Shickley. <laughs> did the music and it is an incredible score actually very 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 interesting stuff as you might expect from peter shipley and that's just i don't know another case like that what what, what yeah, why don't you tell us i'm certainly familiar with pdq bach from my parents record collection but right. could you tell tell anybody listening who peter shipley slash pdq bach is yeah peter shipley is well he was a he was an oboe player first but he, he was a very 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 competent composer and he invented a character named pdq bach who was the last and and least talented of, of J.S. Bach's sons that, uh, that he, he adopted this character uh, where he composes what are supposed to be terrible pieces but are incredible studies of various kinds of classical things. And he, he did also a, a lot of other musical humor, like everything from, you know, one of my favorites is the uh, is Beethoven's the symphony first movement uh, run as a, as, a, as a baseball commentary going on behind it for what goes on and he, a lot of wonderful stuff. Shickley is a very, very, very good composer. And, uh, but in those days would have been far less known. And, uh, the fact that he was on this, that he wrote the songs in the movie that Joan Baez sings, which is interesting that Joan Baez sings the, uh, the theme song that's in there. The, the, there's another song too. The, the, so what do you, um, what, you went to back to this movie because you thought this would be a good time to watch it. Yeah. What did it mean to you in our current time of a right. global two, lockdown? Well, there's two things. One is it's about isolation. The guy, we're talking about a guy who, would, who, who, who has to go into a, a state of reckoning about a state of isolation and what and has to configure just a very simple world around him to deal with human type things. And it's odd because, of course, he's a sort of back to nature guy, but it's in, but it's in, but it's in a, in a what was, 
I mean, the tech looks low by our standards or the standards of science fiction movies that we normally do, but nonetheless, it's portrayed as a, you know, a highly technological universe, but he's this way. And, you know, so he has to deal with the loneliness, so, but the programs and devices around him in order to provide some kind of humanity. And this is very interesting because at the same time, there's a death feature, which is that he's killed somebody in order to achieve this. So now we have a guy who's killed somebody who's alone in the middle of the universe, destination unknown, trying to save the forest, right? So right. I think since we're all, a good deal of us are living alone in these circumstances with only yourself, the question is what, do, what, what is it that you are and what do you have? I think this comes up with everybody. And so I feel like there was a, there, there's a good gesture in that direction in the movie uh, that way. And the other thing is that the fact of the matter is that our entire, uh, the entire predicament that the world finds itself in now is dealing with its relation. For once, we're all commonly dealing with our relationship to the natural world and things that we do or don't do in relation to it are very, uh, are in a state of immediacy for us. And so, and, and in a technological world that isn't coping with the situation and where there's a great deal of problems and a great deal of simulacra in order to cope with the fact that we've gotten rid of so much, essentially. You know, I, I feel like your favorite scene in the movie, it's certainly my favorite scene, is what you might call the cantaloupe scene, which is while the dude still has three other guys to disagree with, they're, you know, they're a little bit more like astronaut pilot kind of guys who could really care less about trees in space. Yeah, jocks. And he uh, and he and they make fun of him because he's eating like a cantaloupe that he grew because they, of course, all eat like powder. And he blows up at them uh, <coughs> about, you know, real food and what's happened. So we never get to visit what's happened to the world. So you have to have a sort of mental picture of it. But the thing I like is that traditionally you would imagine the world that they left behind as being like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Uh-huh. But yeah. actually, what do they say? Everywhere in the world is 75 degrees. There's no <laughs> more disease, no more poverty, and everyone has a job. Yeah, that's right. And that's the nightmare for this guy, which was the homogeneity of it all, the fact that nobody had any imagination. Yeah. It's <laughs> so amazing. It's really funny how we're in a state of, um, we're in a state of near global conformity. Right. And I think the reason America is having a tougher time with it than some other places is that it, our democratic system is actually designed so that it operates while people still get to disagree about things all the time. And now we have things we're not really allowed to disagree about. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so it's causing us all a fair amount of anxiety where it's like, wait a second, I can't decide for myself what I want to do with these facts? No, these are the facts and this is your prescribed behavior. So this guy, uh, it, oh, although of course, you know, to a great extent, our planet is trying to kill us right now. So uh, that's probably different from that, where he's the guy who's trying to save the flora of the planet. Yeah. Yeah, which is really, really, really unusual. And I think I think there's, there's some other things. I mean, I think the Trumbull... Trumbull is clearly a very, very interesting person. And we're talking about a, a person that seems to be very desired by uh, in, in, in the world of what you would consider modern, the very modern effects deal, special effects deal in science fiction movies. But his solutions have always been, you know, he's like some kind of next generation Harryhausen type character, but he's also got this capability to, to, to directing. 
and uh, and I think his visions clearly for for movies are are kind of special because the other one he did was Brainstorm, and that's a very interesting movie. I did, did, do you want to say a few words about what that is? I actually haven't seen Brainstorm for a long time, so I, I'll let you characterize it as another one of his movies. Well, Brainstorm is first thing is let's the Brainstorm was never really fully completed in the form that it was supposed to be for the for the reason that Natalie Wood died or was murdered <laughs> and but it has Christopher Walken and her in it those are the two lead roles and it's about a device that can record your dreams your brain waves and then someone else can have your experiences by playing it back and what this does in terms of people's desirability which which uh you know it 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 just deals with kind of, I think the thing that I like about these movies as opposed to some science fiction, because I'm also a Philip K. Dick fan, and they're not specifically really about the technology. They're about a placement of norm, a replacement of normal human affairs in a completely removed environment. And, and that, that was, that was essentially Philip K. Dick's uh, thing too, you know, like he didn't really care for for the tech particularly and felt that better research material was done in looking at 16th century alchemical, you know, alchemy books to work out how to write science fiction, you know? So I think there's something here that's sort of like that, but at the same time, Trumbull is involved in, in, in intriguing special effects stuff like a lot. And some of the work in, in silent running is, is using effects that were supposed to be in 2001, but didn't get to be in 2001, so we used them in this film. You know, it, you know, there's things like that all along the way. And I, that was, I went on three tangents there, but just to say that the, the, the fellow is very interesting, and they, everyone says that. He's still alive, of course. You can see stuff about him. But, uh, he, you know, he doesn't, he's only done the two directing jobs, so. Uh, but, you're right. I mean, and it's like the science fiction was really still kind of a, a niche a genre, even in the early 70s. I mean, 2001 opened the door and Star Wars kept it open forever. Do you know what I mean? And then the return of Star Trek and everything else. And so it became this sort of struggle between, you know, speculative content yeah. uh, versus uh, sort of pulpy entertainment. And we, we probably know how that story ends. Right. But, I do think that, you know, one of the things I found interesting rewatching it now is that, you know, we side with, I keep using the guy, is his name Lowell Friedman? Is that right? Lowell, yes. That's so it. You got it. Lowell Friedman, where, you know, we're expected to agree with him in the sense that we like cantaloupes and we like growing food and we're against, that's pretty standard, you know, that like we're always supposed to prefer the organic to the synthetic. He just doesn't have a chance of convincing those other three guys. He kills them and replaces them with three drones that he programs to agree with him. And then he would have gotten away with it except for what you would almost call human compassion, which is that he gets rescued by people, <laughs> which means that he can't escape with what he was trying to do. And so he sends the last drone off with the plants so that the, um, so that the artificial intelligence will continue to grow the plants that in theory the drone doesn't really need. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's very intriguing. It's an odd way that you know that what 
it's like, they, if I'm not mistaken you, he gets really kind of like rescued at the end, and that's what ruins his scheme. An interesting feature <laughs> is, yes, he ruins his scheme, and, and there's an interesting feature also, which is that there, there was an alternate set of stuff that was partially filmed that didn't go on in the film that was in the, in the original script, where apparently he's, it's, it's more like they, he, he, he gets rescued. It's more like they work out his criminality and he's going to get in trouble, realize he has to save the situation. He programs the robot, but he had just been contacted by aliens. So it's a first contact situation. Well, so alien life form had, 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 had actually contacted him. And now he's caught in a thing of running away from those people and the alien contact. So what he does, he, he had, he got, he got the robot to go up and apparently in one version of this, the aliens actually make contact with the robot. They go in there and the robot shows the aliens that look very perplexed about it. A photograph of the robots posing with Bruce Dern. And that was an actual alternate ending. For this yeah. But how, again, how do the aliens feel about Joan Baez and Cantaloupe? <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. It really is. You know, it reminds you of, it's just like I said, it reminds you, you know, early Star, early, early Star Treks used to have this kind of philosophical stuff with these sorts of characterizations that would come in and what, you know, a kind of what if manner about them. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I like this. Star Trek was never interested in purely human problems. It was always about them encountering some other planet where they were screwed up some way that in the backstory of Star Trek, humanity had solved famine and pestilence and war and had really gotten it together to go out to explore the universe. I suppose that I suppose so I was more thinking of their of their of their of some of some of the early episodes like where they go to a planet that would be called Eden and right. it would be like Eden or like the one where they you know they have all the people that are fighting over a, a, what looks to be a weird kind of religion and it turns out that what they pray to in their churches is a small fragment of the declaration of independence that had been that they that they found left over. I mean, it does have those kind of. There were some. There was a lot of not a lot, but in the early in the first two series, there were those kinds of uh, uh, sort of uh, philosophical digressions that way. Like you know, they'd find a planet that was really just the same as Earth, except that it was some you know. It, you know, the time of Al Capone or something, you know, very strange stuff like that, you know, and they go. So, uh, uh, is there anybody out there who, like, what kind of person does want to watch Silent Running right now? And can you say to anybody out there who's isolated that this maybe should avoid it? Like, it's a triggering content. Like, is it, is it for people who are isolated by themselves? Because I'm with my wife and child and a dog, so I don't have this pressing loneliness that other people have. It's like, right. I'm busy. Right. So I, but other people I think are like desperate for human contact. Is this good for people who are in isolation? I think it depends on your personality. I think it can be very good. I, it, see, I, I think it's, it's, the, it's the same as, you know, as, as, as the, as the, as the two kinds of, of, of magic out there, you know, you have the kind that is, you know, it's like, well, if you have a cold, then you should, you know, have ice cream or you should, have some warm drinks, you know, it's, it's, it could go either way. And so some people, I think some people might be triggered by it. I thought the advantage of it, I found there's been moments where I've been like, wow, it's a alone. Do I really want to sit through something? It has the advantage that it's only an hour and 20 minutes long. That's a very short film. I did and find it very tidy. It, what's that? 
I did find it very tidy. I mean, I, I, you know, yeah. when you never have enough money to make a movie, one of the things you do is cut pages. So that's probably what they did. I'm kind of astonished they did a bunch of alternate endings, but. I, I suppose on the, on the thing about the loneliness, it's not really so bad because it shows a person who can get along with themselves and that there's things to do and, uh, and there's a humanity in that, I, I think. Um, but yes, if it's going to be, if it's going to make you feel uh, trapped and like there isn't a way out or a back end, it might not be that good to, I could see that being a problem for people. But on the other hand, I thought it explored the theme very well. And in a way, uh, uh, you know, much like if you were teaching someone who was in isolation, a kind of meditation or yoga, uh, there's something to do there, no matter what yeah. that improves the situation. So I don't think it's that bad for that. I definitely think it's very good for anyone who has any interest in uh, science fiction movies. I mean, that, this is another reason why I want to do it. We actually haven't done anything in that genre, and I thought this is a very interesting one to do. It's kind of quirky in the 70s. Also, if you're interested in any kind of 60s, 70s sort of uh, stylistic or, 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 uh, or anachronistic type stuff from, from, that, from that period, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, and, and also it has commentary on corporate stuff. I mean, the American Airlines is running the is 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 the owner of the ships you know and they're wearing right, absolutely <laughs> you know and so if you want if you want a nice you know down with the man and the weird way that corporations just won't go away even when they're failing it's a great movie for that because they were already <laughs> the movies made in 1972 and they're already on that <laughs> they're already on that ticket oh, yeah. we, want, we want to own the future <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know it hasn't come if i can transition to our other movie good idea the fun thing is that um both movies have in common. I was doing a little research on, you know, the making of them. In both cases, they, I don't want to say complain, but they, they were really controlled by the fact that they really barely had enough money and they could really get the movie done. And both movies cost a million dollars. Yes. Very so one of them is a million dollars in 1972, uh, which is a little bit more than a million dollars in 1995, but it's still not a lot of money to really achieve anything. And I think Silent Running did a lot in terms of creating a future, in, 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 you know, an outer space future for a very small amount of money. And the other movie, the one that I gravitated to in our current situation is uh, Safe, directed by Todd Haynes, written and directed by Todd Haynes, which is, uh, I remembered it being great. I liked it the first time I saw it. I've seen it over the years. And now I really, I cannot say more about this movie. It really is kind of a masterpiece. I think it's really spectacular. You'd never seen it, so now I've I've sort of set you up to hate it. What did you think of it? Uh, I was intrigued by the movie. I, I was <laughs> I was thoroughly. I mean, I really. For, first thing is, I mean, well, Ronge, actually, I think this time I talked very very soon about the movie that I picked. I think I wanted you to say a little bit more about this movie, and then we'll talk about my impression. All right, good. So um, I was thinking about. Uh, there's a lot of movies that I think speak to about isolation or, I mean, I watched Contagion first, like everybody. I went straight to the Soderbergh movie, which was, you know, not unbelievably prescient. It was really a research-based thriller about what could happen in the case of a global pandemic. Uh, and it was uh, very effective. And I watched it quite a number of weeks ago before things got really bad in the United States. But I was like, okay, yep. But then I started to think about other movies. And one that, came to me was safe, which uh, very briefly is about a woman named Carol White in Southern California. It's a period piece. The movie was made in 1995, but it very specifically takes place in 1987, um, uh, who finds herself gradually becoming allergic to 
the society in which she lives, whether it's the chemicals or whether it's the fumes in the air or whatever, she finds herself having increasing allergic reactions, which drive her away from her husband and stepson and friends and social structure to uh, isolating herself at a place called Renwood, where she meets other people who are like her in the sense that they uh, can't integrate into society because they have an allergy to, as somebody puts it in a flyer, are you allergic to the 20th century? Um, and uh, it ends with her finding a new home inside a safe room, safe space in which nothing can get to her. Uh, whether it's a happy ending or a sad ending, you can't really tell. It's a movie that can be read in a variety of different ways. Because it took place in 1987, a lot of people thought it was really an allegory to the AIDS epidemic and the way America responded to it. But I think it's bigger than any sort of allegory because I think it's, unlike most allegories, it's truly ambiguous movie about what exactly is going on. The movie never makes it abundantly clear that this condition exists. It doesn't really uh, think of it as a disease with a cure. Yeah. It doesn't really let you know whether she's, she maybe has achieved a goal of hers at the end, but we don't know whether there's an irony to the fact that she's just recreated another trap for her because she was really kind of a kept woman. Um, like what, there's just a lot of different ways to read it. The things that appeal to me going back to it, and the reason I call it a masterpiece for a guy who's made a lot of good movies, is it's, um, it, it, it's got a very rigorous style in the sense that it's a movie that even though they didn't have a lot of time and a lot of days, he composed the shots quite perfectly. He used every aspect of filmmaking that he had. Hair, makeup, wardrobe, props, locations, all of it just chewing gum and spit. But he really did a lot of recreating it. You know, later on he made Far From Heaven, which is uh, a recreation of a sort of Douglas Sirk 1950s melodrama that yeah. is so note perfect that it almost seems like a you know, like a cover song or like the way the Dap Kings are doing James Brown. Like he was really aping a very particular aesthetic. I don't think people saw that quite so much in 1995. But now you look at like how quickly he really learned how to isolate a time and a place and a mentality. Uh, and then at its end, it has a star-making performance by Julianne Moore, who hadn't really starred in a movie before. Yeah. But is so... Um, what can I say that she, she and the film are in such symbiosis? So I really, really, I really liked it. Um, and I found it enjoyable. I watched it a couple of times and I went back and I watched it with the commentary track. What was your reaction to it? Because of course, even a movie that could ultimately be great to you might on first viewing be colored by your expectations of it or how it turned out. So what did you think from watching it? And please be completely honest. I had zero a take before I went in on on anything that it was going to be about or anything. And uh, I did know, I did see that it was about some sort of disease thing. So I thought, well, that's really, that's timely, but I wasn't really looking for that. And so I, I really watched it from a position of, I, I think what was a healthy blankness. And uh, I was n immediately stunned by some of the shots, the, comp the composition of some of the shots, which were, so 
great looking and and excellently depicts what I mean the interesting thing is I lived in LA and, and you did too and we've lived there at different times and, and for stretches of time and it was really shot right in the LA that I know and that I lived in a lot of it not up in the not up in the hills but anytime they were down in West LA there and so there's a lot of things that it captures that are exactly like that and it captures it in very very quick moments, shots, lifestyle things that you see that are just like things that were there. That is, that, that is, that's excellent. The next thing is you start to notice that it's, it's translating meaning in a way that isn't overt, that isn't piping you over the head with it. And it also has some very interesting features that, uh, that were striking to me just in, in the technology of how they did it. There's a kind of camera movement that you don't see. It's a very slow drifting camera movement that happens that makes you feel as though what you're normally, you're being pulled into something important the way that Hollywood movies frequently do or, or you know, or the, or the Western aesthetic, but it never really gets there. And you can't really tell that it was in order to do what the usual move with a camera doing that kind of drift or movement is for. That gives you a very unseated feeling. And she, yeah. and, and, and I thought that this was very skillful and it was, it kind of drew me in right away. I was watching that. And, uh, and so, um, I'm just saying an initial thing, this is what helped me in the movie. I was actually not in a state of judgment. And also Julianne Moore is already doing a penetrating performance from, from the outset. It's an incredible drive. It's an incredible acting drive right away. So you're, you're, you're sucked into it. You know what I mean? So I wasn't going to go anywhere or think anything particularly other than to figure out what was going on. Uh, you were about to say something. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, you know, that there's, there are kind of two kind of zooms in effect in this movie. And one of them is the slow or not a zoom party. One of them is a slow push in, which is, you know, part of the horror movie aesthetic that, that, it's part of the horror vocabulary that Todd Haynes is using really effectively, but he also is making effective use of the effect called the dolly zoom. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right. Which is the, the effect popularized by vertigo, the dramatic effect of uh, pulling back with moving the camera far away while zooming in, yeah. which is a way of sort of, keeping the distance between camera and subject approximately the same, but changing the perspective. Yeah. So that was done dramatically in Vertigo and again in Jaws and, a, you know, uh, but, oh, yeah. but just a few years before this is when um, Martin Scorsese did it in, uh, in a diner scene in Goodfellas in a right. way that just makes the viewer uncomfortable. So this would have been not that long after that. It's really, it, it's really great. Everything that he does to accentuate her performance. I also was really good listening to the commentary track. Actors are so different. Julianne Moore, some actors don't wanna know anything about the film. They just wanna work on their performance and sort of stay out of the camera. Whereas she absolutely cares about her frame line. She wants to know what 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 part of the screen she's working in. And so yeah. she seems perfectly situated to the movie. She has a kind of awareness that a lot of actors who disappear into her character really don't. I couldn't, uh, and then everything about her, she could tell she lost weight while she was making it. Mm. You, you know, the different hairstyles they put her in, that crazy perm, um, the way that they made her clothes gradually more and more ill-fitting. The yeah. fact that those 80s uh, shoulder pads just started to fall off her. Yeah. That's right. And she starts off just sort of this sort of frail background person anyway, who's, you know, just getting 
somehow, you know, you, you really, it's a, I think that there's something to, uh, what you realize is kind of this is, you know, the paradigm of the star of the movie. She's the person that she's, that, the, that they're, that, that you're following everywhere, but she's completely faded out. She's frail. She's, she's, she's sort of, uh, you know, turning into a, a, you know, a weed waving around in the wind while you're watching her be the star of the show. It's just very disconcerting that way. And the odd thing, I mean, I just want to say something else about that camera thing that you said. This is what I, I think what I'm meaning is that the way that all the, ca the camera technique, the two camera techniques that you're talking about there, that yes, are used in other films and are that way and are, and are incredible ideas. But in those films, it stated, you can see it. It's very obvious when it does it. You're like, whoa, amazing effect is this. And you, you know, here it's almost unnoticeable. It's moving at such a slow rate and drifted. The feeling of drift, you know, while this is going on is very, it's, it's just very interesting. I just want to say that it doesn't, it, it, the camera technique is used differently than the, than the, than the way, than, than it is those techniques, but it's used in a really different way, I think, than you see in those. Films. The way her waist doesn't really get low, she's like barely, She's just like a, her voice does everything to avoid sort of filling the room. She's just very practically whispering when she talks. When she writes down that sign-in sheet, her pencil handwriting is like barely pressing down. Everything about it is perfectly kind of unified. Yeah. Uh, the reason I liked it for now, there's two things. One, the feeling that whenever you leave your house, you're allergic to everything. Right. That, you know, I'm a guy who... Uh, Whenever you read those articles about how many times we all touch our face, I'm like high on the curve. I'm just somebody who's really uh, lives a life for the mind. It doesn't pay attention to my physical reality. And so now, you know, when you go out of the house, whether you're into the glove and mask thing or not, in your house, you're safe. And then when you go out, anything can happen at any point. And right. So you really feel like, uh, you know, like, like, like Orpheus who can do anything but look behind him, right? Like right. that. So right. there's that. And then there's this part where they go to uh, Renwood, which is the name of the sort of institute that she goes to. And she, the guru there is this guy named Peter Dunning, who's, um, you know, the one who sort of talks them through this condition. And he ultimately tells them that, he starts to say things that like they caused their illness, right? Only they can get sick because essentially they're choosing to get sick for some reason. And then he says that he doesn't, that he stopped watching the news and paying attention to the outside world because he believes just hearing that could also make you sick. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I get that. <laughs> you see how that is. Um, what did you think of the music in the movie? Uh, you know, I thought it was good for, I thought a lot of it was good. And then I thought that it, it slipped up a couple times. Like it got into some, it got in some cheesy thematic. Like it went from what I thought was a really incredible sound palette, very, very thin, very controlled sort of synthesis, synthesized, very controlled and aware use of synthesis, sound, sound synthesis. Uh, and it just bothered me when it went into some kinds of really, simplistic sort of songy type things with using those same uh those same uh effects but the basic thing of it of of, of having disembodied sounds and, and doing it with the synthesizers and, and 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 more conscious synthesis i thought were really really well done really good 
And, uh, and, um, but again, I wasn't, it wasn't the main feature with me. I mean, but you know, it's funny because I, I, I it was so, I mean, I, I think that it was really good in as much as it did, it did the same thing as the camera, the disembodied feeling is really what I, what I very much enjoyed about it when it was doing that, you know, and it wasn't like normal drama. It was like, he'd been very conscious of the fact that he wasn't going to use all parts of the sound subspectrum. There was, there was not a lot of base information, which gives you a feeling of disembodiment. So, um, things like that, that are, that I thought were, were good. I have to, we can't wrap up without talking about my favorite character in the movie. Who's that? Lester, the guy <laughs> who's covered from head to foot. Yes. Very interesting that. Right. So that's a guy, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't notice this. That's the guy who, that when they go to Renwood, he never approaches the group and he's completely concealed from head to foot. And, um, he can't even really let anything about the world, even the air, touch him. And he doesn't have any lines. That he, But he ended up being on the poster for the movie. And I wonder if you know who played Lester. I do not. I was really hoping this would happen, Jonathan. It's our friend Rio Hackford. You're kidding. No, that's Rio. Uh, so uh, for anybody listening who's outside of New Orleans, Rio Hackford is a you know, tremendous actor who's known for... Uh, most recently, he was in the OJ miniseries. He's got a great part in Swingers. But he's uh, done a lot of stuff in New Orleans. And he's uh, sort of a large character. But he, um, yeah, his, and he's got a very long body. He's a tall dude with a big trunk. And so he, his body shape is perfect for playing this kind of walking alien. And so it's just a, one of those things where you just walk onto the set of a movie and you end up kind of like, completely encapsulating everything that the movie's about. He's doing this little, I talked to him last night about it. He's doing this little walk that he took from somebody else. And oh, wow. Just, um, you know, I was talk, talking to him about the way that um, a lot of actors come to a part, they read the script and they like it, and then they show up with a, a cape and a limp and an Australian accent. And you know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they want to wear a fake nose. Like they've come up with all these ideas that a filmmaker sometimes has to be like, well, I like that and not that. Like you have a lot of things. And he said that everything that he came up with, Todd Haynes said, that's perfect. That's exactly right. Like, so it's one of those moments where Julianne Moore in her own way and Rio read the script, figured out who the character was, and then just completely came in and, melded with the script to sort of make the movie exactly what it was. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, uh, that's really, that's really cool information. I, I, I love it. But, I mean, <laughs> well, Chad, we had it. Real Hackford was also in your movie. That, that's well, of course. Why, why do you think I like him so much? Yeah. He's, I, I, I'm a happy man if I can get him in every movie. I always call him my Jack Nance. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, in every David Lynch movie forever. I, I think there's a couple of uh, a couple of thematic things I think will draw people into when we see the movie that are very interesting. I mean, one of the things is it's ahead of the time, and as much as when she starts to first feel the thing and explains it, there's always men around. She's got a very dominant, domineering type doctor and husband and people like that who are there to not really believe that what she's saying is true, that it's all a product of her mind, it's all in her imagination, and she should yep. shrink. And then, of course, that first, so first, she can't handle anything. She's not responsible for it. And she doesn't know what she's got. And she moves into the other environment where it's all her fault. <laughs> yeah. you know, this is a very interesting contrast. And of course you're into that new agey thing with, with, with people that are, you know, just 
freely coming up with theories and suggesting that everything is down to love, but she, you know, she can't get quite comfortable anywhere, you know? And so, so it has that particular item. Yeah. They keep, they keep talking about your load, right? Like your load of, um, toxins or whatever that you can hold on to and carry around and whether you can have as much as other people and you know or what was the one i had to write this down there's a little mantra they repeat at redwood where they have to say we are one with the power that created us right we are safe and all is well in our world you know there's just so i always get nervous when anybody starts uh chanting period just any repeat after me i'm like oh this isn't gonna end well uh, so the idea that it ends with her sort of, you know, completely fulfilling the fantasy of becoming safe by ending up, you know, in a kind of cell. She's 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 locked in a cell. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can sort of play the game that she's very small in large spaces at the beginning of the movie, where she's somebody who's often like either marginal or just somebody who's really a small aspect of her environment. And at the end of the movie, she ends up sort of filling the space. Uh-huh. Uh, and that sort of, that she's big in her room in a way that she was small before. I think, just because I think that Todd Haynes is a master of every uh, aspect of framing, color, and a lot of other things, I just feel like uh, every, what I like is that every, every choice in the film is deliberate, but its meaning is ambiguous. And I think that's probably why it's like I probably said on a previous podcast, what I like about movies like this or one car wide movies is that they're sort of inexhaustible. You can keep watching them and not get the same thing where maybe you wouldn't feel that way about like, I don't know, bad day, black rock or the Oxbow incident or some movie that's very clearly designed to convince you of a particular point of view. This movie doesn't tell you what to think, even though it seems like the kind of movie that is supposed to be a polemic against something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I think the interesting thing to me about this is that you're dealing with a director. He's a very big theory guy, film theory guy, and I didn't really and and usually uh, not. The, I mean, you like a lot, and it's not saying you dislike a lot of people, but film theory isn't one of your favorite things, and he's he's very much like that. But I, but yeah, he's skillful. I mean, it's just. But a lot of his ideas based that way, you know, I mean, it's semi, because, and I, re, I understand he was trained in semiotics. That was his, you know, when he was at college. And uh, so he just kind of have a big understanding of how to, how to really shift meanings around as people do. Uh, they have that, and you can see it's very skillful and the salt thing. So I thought that was very interesting that you, that you, that you really had a thing for Todd Haynes. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, as usual, completely edified by your recommendations. So uh, I'll ask you, who should see this movie? Who's going to get triggered? Well, you know, you couldn't call it escapism because it really is, um, you know, this is interesting. I almost wanted to say what the two movies have in common is this thing that like, I don't know the last time you watched Network, but you know how like some movies used to be a satire and now they're just kind of like true? Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. You know, yeah. <laughs> like you go back and like to a young audience, Network is not particularly prescient. Right. They're like, well, of course, there's a soothsayer on the news, uh-huh. right? Like, like, of course, they cancel broadcasters with bad ratings. What are you talking about? So in some ways, you know, um, Silent Running isn't exactly a documentary about what's going on, but you certainly think, like, there's a horror to a kind of perfect conformity that doesn't have room for the, the organic matter of Earth, okay? You could probably see there's something there. Um, but... 
safe is, uh, how would I put this? We, the movie has an ambiguity about whether it's possible to be allergic to everything. And we're currently walking around inside an environment in which we are potentially allergic to everything. <laughs> so in some ways, there's a comfort to this movie that didn't exist many five years ago, which is that, uh, you, you know, what's the, the rule of paranoia that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean somebody isn't following you. Yeah. Like, I feel like Carol would be so emboldened by our current world. It would give her a kind of peace just to know what was wrong with her. Uh-huh. And I think um, that's probably for people who would like to have their current predicament explained to them, this might be a good movie for them. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't want to be in this world. In fact, I was going to end our podcast today by suggesting that we don't wait two years before we do it again. We do a double feature where each of us picks a movie for like consistent. Yeah. And we go in the opposite direction. So instead of going sort of towards our current predicament, let's decide before we talk next time, why don't we pick a movie for the other one that's um, the opposite of our current predicament, whatever okay. that is. Yeah, I, I think that's good. I mean... I can think of some things that, that might go. In so that. I th- yeah. So in other words, my last thought about safe is it's not for people who don't want to listen to the news right now. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who's like following everything and constantly refreshing their browser for the latest thing. And yeah, then you probably want to, uh, you want to have this thing investigated artistically and thematically. This is your picture. Yeah. If it depresses you, then uh, save it for a brighter day. Yeah, and also I think I, I think both the movies also share the thing that if you if you think that that if you you know you have to remember I think they both show how far back people being concerned about the environment uh, are even in major production. You know what I mean? I think it's a, it's a, it's a voice there. Of course, that's always been a voice been a voice since Roman times. What's going on with the destruction of the world? Uh, but you know, but of course now we're we're in we're in a bit of a crunch time. But people have been thinking that for a long time and worried about it, and so they're both both those things are depicted here. So if you know, if you, you know, yeah, I wouldn't watch it for that reason, but I would I would watch it for the reason I just said. Wouldn't watch it for the reasons you just said. You know, also, if you're afraid of loneliness or the solitude. So anyway, yeah. Well, I think that's a good. I think that's a good aim. If we go, uh, if we. Go. All right, good. So I don't know. We'll talk uh, off pod, Severa, what we're going to watch for next time. But I'm kind of curious what you're going to come up with. I'll probably think of something uh, um, pleasantly diabolical for you too. Yeah, it sounds good. All right. Well, have a good day, people, and I think we'll uh, we'll log off here and uh, and then. Thanks, man. Uh, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. See ya.